Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke with God, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Moses went up. Mount Sinai, called Jebel Musa today, actually looks like, if you were to look at it, and this is very interesting, it looks like standing there on the horizon, a huge, massive pulpit. It does. As if the Lord steps down in front of this pulpit to preach the first, most important sermon that would be heard by any people, but especially by this people Israel. Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai, Sinai means thorny. And we talked about Wednesday night. You could call this thorny mountain. You could also, if you're a Lord of the Rings buff, call it Mount Doom. Because Her- um, what was Her- Horeb, sorry, Horeb, Mount Horeb, the other name for Mount Sinai, also means death or killer. On Thorny Mountain, or on Mount Death, Mount Doom, Killer Mountain, this is where God brought the law. And it's no wonder, because here at this great rock pulpit, when God lays down the law, the law means one thing. It means death. You can try to keep the law. You can be a Christian, and there are, unfortunately, a lot of Christians who do attempt to be keepers of the law. But if you bank your entire salvation on the law, you will die. And I'm not talking the physical death, I'm talking the spiritual death, because the law cannot save you. Why is that? Because you cannot keep the law. You can't do it. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. You don't have the righteousness. One man and one man alone had the ability to do that, and that's Jesus. And he's the one I would encourage you to bank your righteousness, your salvation on. Not the law. The law was given kind of like a mirror. It's like those lighted mirrors. You know in the, in the stores in the mall, like Sharper Image, you can go in and they have those, those mirrors and they magnify and they've got the light all the way around those. Can I just ask you ladies, who of you would buy one of those? <laughs> I've had a look in one of those mirrors. <laughs> Nothing but huge gaping pores staring back. <laughs> Cavernous holes in my face. It's just like, oh, why would you buy that? <laughs> I understand buying makeup. But those lighted mirrors, and yet that's exactly what the law is, because stand me up next to the law, and what you get are all my imperfections, all of my sin, all of my unrighteousness, all the ugliness in my life. Man, compare me to the law of God, the perfect law. Psalm 19 tells us the law of the Lord is perfect. Stand me up next to it, and you get a very ugly picture. So why did God give the law? Why did he just skip right on ahead to grace? Why not just begin with Jesus instead of going through this whole process with Israel of the law giving? Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 tells us the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. How does that work? The law shows me my need. The law reveals my sin. And once I see that, the more aware I am of that, the more I am lost without Him, the more desperate I am for Him. The law is my teacher. But what's wonderful about Exodus 19, and we looked into these things for quite a while on Wednesday night, 
What's wonderful about Exodus 19 is that the backdrop of the giving of the law, as seen in this chapter, is grace. Surrounded by the law given, by the people getting ready for the giving of the law, which will happen in chapter 20, is grace. How so? Well, we looked at three things Wednesday night. Let me briefly tell you what those were. Number one, we saw the awesomeness of the Sinai story in the fact that it's history revealed. That this actually and truly happened. That as we read, the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai in smoke and fire, and the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the mountain quaked violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Awesome picture. Can you imagine being one of the children of Israel at the foot of that mountain at the time? If you can imagine it, imagine being absolutely scared out of your wits, terrified. We've got to get out of here. Yes, this God saved us, but this is too much. And you will see the people ultimately come to Moses and say, you got to go talk to God for us. We can't handle this. It's too intense. It's an awesome history revealed, a true story, something that actually happened. But it's awesome also because within that history is a prophecy fulfilled. And God does this. We talked about back in, in Genesis. Talk about Abraham and Isaac and how Abraham goes up the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's a picture of the sacrifice a father would give of his son in the Lord and in Jesus. It's, it's not written down that this is what's going to happen. It's a historical prophecy that we read the story, we look at it, and we see in that story the very picture of Jesus' crucifixion. In Exodus 19, the same thing happens. There is within this chapter a prophecy revealed. I want to quickly show this to you and we'll move on. If you want to sometime do this more in depth, I encourage you to. But look at Exodus 19 and compare it to Acts chapter 2. Compare the two. Look at them. Let me throw these out to you. At Mount Sinai, God the Father descended in fire. At Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, God the Spirit descended in fire. At Sinai, God's voice thundered. Thundered. Rabbis say, and I think this is so cool, they say and they've taught for years and years and years that the voice of God spoken at Mount Sinai, they call it the voice of many waters. They called it that for years and years. Along comes John in Revelation chapter 1 verse 15 and that's the, the, the description he gives for Jesus' voice, the voice of many waters. But the rabbis will teach and even teach today that when God spoke at Sinai, 70 languages were spoken. All in one. They think that there was around 70 different people groups on earth at the time, 70 nations. And so that's what they teach, that 70 languages were spoken. Isn't it interesting that at Pentecost, the word was heard in multiple languages. Every nation under the sun showed up there. Again, Acts chapter 2, you can read it on your own time. Look at what happens. They all gather around. Peter begins to preach, and they're looking at each other going, I can't, I, a few minutes ago I couldn't even talk to you, and yet now you and I are hearing the same message, and we both understand in our own language. Awesome. At Sinai, God poured out the law. At Pentecost, He poured out His Spirit. At Sinai, Exodus 32:28 will tell us 3,000 people died at Pentecost. 3,000 people were saved. Compare the two. Look at them. Work it out. For the law, Romans 8:2 tells us, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Sinai, 
pictures Pentecost. An awesome prophecy fulfilled. But wait, there's more. Exodus 19. It's awesome because it's history revealed. It's also awesome because it's prophecy fulfilled. But third, that we talked about Wednesday, it's awesome because it's a prophecy unveiled. That is one that has not yet happened, but will. We see in the story of Exodus 19, the people coming to the mountain, something else happens. God the Father, He came down at Sinai, and God the Spirit comes down at Pentecost, but God the Son. God the Son is going to come down as well. And this passage gives us hints, pictures, clues to an event called the rapture. The rapture of the church. That word's been tossed around and used an awful lot over the last 30, 40 years. People say, oh, rapture, that's just a church word, right? No, it's not. It comes from the Latin word raptus, which is also the Greek word harpazo. It's not that special word. It just means to be caught up, to be pulled out. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, that's what Paul says will happen. The rapture, the church will be caught up to meet with Jesus in the clouds. According to Scripture, there are two distinct aspects of Jesus' return, and it's important for us to understand this. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I'll let Scripture speak here. Paul writes to Titus, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Listen to this. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope and the appearing of Jesus. There are two things that seem to be indicated there, but it's not just that verse that indicates it. For the blessed hope, that's a picture. That is the rapture. That's the hope that every believer has, that we will be caught up, that we will be saved. That as Paul says again in 1 Thessalonians 4, we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. That's good news. Put a smile on your face. That's the destiny if you are a believer in Jesus. Not wrath. The blessed hope. Matthew 24, verse 44. Jesus talks about that as well. He says, one's going to be left. One's going to be taken. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 talks about it specifically. But the second thing, this glorious appearing of Jesus. Two, two things that are happening. Now you need to understand, and I've shared this before. I grew up with an understanding, with a theology, that it all just kind of happened at once. Jesus would come back, boom, bam, and we're out of here. And we go to heaven, and it's done. The world explodes. Kind of like the Death Star at the end of Star Wars. Good call. The world is gone and we're just there and that's it. But the Bible indicates otherwise. And I keep saying this and I know there are differences of opinion on this even in Christianity. I know it can be confusing. But when you tie yourself to the Word of God and look at what the Word teaches, literally, specifically, it's hard to miss these things. There is a blessed hope of being caught up to meet with Jesus. There is also a glorious appearing where the Bible says Jesus in person sets foot on the soil of the earth to rule on David's throne. Here are some verses to look up later. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7. Matthew chapter 24 verses 40 through 41. Zechariah 14 4, which is a really hard verse to overlook when it says his feet will be planted on the Mount of Olives. It's not just... He's going to pull us out. The world's destroyed and he never comes back. No. Zechariah is clear. 
Isaiah is clear. The Old Testament prophets say, man, this great, glorious, wonderful, fantastic, amazing king is going to come back to earth to reign. Oh, well, that was Jesus' first coming. He didn't reign, folks. He was crucified the first time. He was a suffering servant the first time. He ascended. But he has not descended out of the clouds, coming down to plant his feet on planet earth and take up the throne of David. So to rule in a perfect reign of righteousness. If he doesn't, the Bible's wrong. If he doesn't, Old Testament scripture is obsolete and unfulfilled. And if that's the case, how do you know God's going to keep any promise that he's given? The Bible's clear, gang. Well, where do you see traces of the rapture in Exodus 19? Let me tell you this. Just before the Lord comes down, something happens. All of these verses I've given you, several of them indicate something specific happens right before the Lord comes down to to rapture the church. What's that, Rick? The trumpets will blast. The blast of a trumpet. Now, there are two trumpets specifically tied to God in the Bible. There are a lot of trumpets talked about in Scripture, but there are two that are directly attached to God Himself. The first trumpet heard here at Mount Sinai. And the last trumpet, which God blows Himself, actually it's His voice, which signals our homecoming. 1 Corinthians 15.51 Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, some people say, well, that's, that's midway through the tribulation. You see, you read that in the book of Revelation, and there are these trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet judgment, that's the last trumpet. So therefore, that's when the church is raptured. That's when you're pulled out. At the seventh, the last trumpet. Problem is, those are angel trumpets. Those are not God. Those are trumpets given to and blown by angels. And the Bible is clear that the last trumpet is the trump of God. The last trumpet, God blows two, one at Sinai and one for our home coming. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, Paul says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, Paul, expecting completely to be alive at the time, said we will be changed. Those who are alive, when that trumpet blows, we're going to be changed. Dead's going to go first, be raised imperishable, and then all of a sudden, we're going to be caught up, and you know what? Then, then I want the sharper image mirror. Then I'm going to look into that mirror and go, yeah, baby. Because I got the glorified body. And I'm looking good. And you can't deny it. Because you're looking good too. We will be raised imperishable. Two trumpets, one for Israel and one for the church. And at the rapture, my friends, we will hear that trumpet. And I can't wait. Took a bunch of teenagers on a retreat several years ago. On Saturday night, up into, the, up into the dark mountains, we went and we climbed up there and we began to have a Bible study about the coming of Jesus. And I had a friend come along and play the trumpet. And they didn't know we had a trumpet there. And I'm reading it, you know. The last trumpet. We will be raised in perishable. And all of a sudden, now the kids were like, whoa, we're done. I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure that one of our 15-year-old guys literally went about 10 feet up before coming back down. <laughs> freaked them out. But listen for it, gang. Because the Bible says it will precede that call to the clouds. I was a sick you, Pastor. (laughs) But that's not what I want to talk to you about this morning. Exodus chapter 19 verse 20 tells us, and I love this verse. 
the Lord came down and Moses went up. There are a few words in between. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. See the picture? The trumpet sounds, the Lord comes down and Moses goes up. And I see in this a prophecy, not yet, but soon to be fulfilled. Well, I want to talk to you about something else today, but that's the backdrop. That's to be understood. When you approach the law, Christians, hear me on this, when you approach the law, always approach it with the canvas of grace. Otherwise, you'll find yourself working awfully hard to achieve something unachievable. But when you approach the law in grace, it becomes, well, it becomes perfect freedom. Let's take a moment and pray, and we're going to go on in this study. Father in heaven, this morning we give our time to you, our hearts to you, our minds to you, Lord. And I pray that you will be crystal clear, Father, because we're going to walk a fine line today between law and grace. But it is so important, I believe, that we understand these things, Lord. So open up our minds and our hearts. Help us to be glued to your words. And Holy Spirit, make sense of all of this for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 19, verse 10. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down. The Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man. He shall not live when the ram's horn sounds a long blast. They shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. (laughs) That was a great look, Barb. (laughs) Just kind of goes... We'll explain that in just a few minutes. I'll let you hang on to that one for a second. God says you've got three days. Three days. Get ready, Israel. I'm coming down. Be prepared. You have three days, and I'm coming. He didn't just show up. There were things that needed to be done, and there weren't things that needed to be done in heaven. There were things that needed to be done on earth in the hearts of the Israelites. They needed to get ready, to be prepared. Crystal Lewis. Crystal Lewis sings a song that I just absolutely love. People get ready. Jesus is coming soon. We'll be going home. And every time I hear that song, I just get tingly. People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. And my question for you today is, are you? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? How am I supposed to get ready? How do I do that? I'm glad you asked. We see it in this chapter. I'm going to give you three ways that you can get ready for Jesus coming this morning. And they're very clear in Exodus. It's three ways that God had the people get ready. How do you do it on the whole heat thing? You comfortable? You too warm? Too cool? Too warm, hot. Getting hot. Okay. I can see it in their eyes. Russ, I know because their eyes start to glaze. <laughs> and it cannot possibly be me. <laughs> Three ways 
that you can get ready for the coming of Jesus. And gang, I know, I know that we talk about this a lot. I'm not dumb. It's not like I sit home and go, maybe we'll talk about Jesus coming. Haven't talked about that in a while, have we? It's not like I missed a short-term memory here. I know that we talk about Jesus coming. Paul says, this is how we comfort each other. This is how we prepare each other. And we need to be looking for and seeing these things in Scripture. And they're all over the place. And don't you think that's God's heart for us anyway? Be ready. I don't want to catch you unaware. He is a God of grace. A God of law. God of law would want to show up. Would want to catch you in the act. Would want to sneak in. And all of a sudden, oh, he's here. You guys weren't ready. Ha! Busted, busted, busted. Go to Gehenna. You're headed south, buddy. That's what a God of law would. That's what I would do if I was God. See, I'm the one who walks down the hallway after lights out and stands outside my kids' bedroom windows or doors. Windows would be a little crazy, but their door inside. And listen. And if I hear something, the door flies open and you know, busted. And I love the look on their face. <laughs> that would be me. That would be me. Praise God that I'm not God. <laughs> good to feel the love in here, isn't it? I'm serious, folks, because if any of us were God, we would want to catch each other in the act. God says, hey, I'm coming. It's happening. Get ready. I've given you ample warning. I don't want you to be surprised. I want you to be children of light so when the day comes, I said this on Wednesday night, and the rapture is happening, you're going, I know. I know it's going to happen. I was looking for it. I thought it would be today. Lord, I thought it was going to be today. And every day you live your life ready, you will be able to say, I thought it was going to be today. And I believe God wants that for us. Well, three ways to get ready. Number one, wash up before dinner. (laughs) Wash up before dinner. Verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Let them get washed. Wash up before dinner. Now I'm adding in the before dinner because in Revelation 19 the Bible tells us what Christians are bound for. It's a feast. The marriage feast of the Lamb. And so we best be getting washed up for dinner. Matthew chapter 22. Jesus tells an interesting parable. I'll just read it to you. Beginning of verse 1, Jesus spoke in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. See, I love this. When Jesus is telling these parables, he's saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to this. We find out later in Revelation, this is exactly what's coming. A king giving a wedding feast for his son. Well, verse 3, so he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. So he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they, listen to this, paid no attention and went their own way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged. So he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Not a pretty sight. Well, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who are invited... They're not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out to the streets, and they gathered together all they they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. That's interesting, both evil and good. Yeah, because evil and good were saved by grace. 
anyway. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. But the king said to the servants, Bind him, hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the problem here? The guy comes to the wedding. He was invited. He shows up. But he's not well dressed. He's not wearing the right clothes. His clothes have not been washed. I hate those orange chairs for that reason right there. Be careful, they stick out. His clothes were not washed. He was not ready. And so the king throws him out. He was unkempt. He was sloppy. He was wearing ungodly attire. And listen, how often do we approach the Lord in sloppy attire? And I'm not talking about the way you're dressed this morning. Hey, we're in a barn. The way it is. But the church in the past has gone down the road of saying, you know what, we need to bring God our best. Which is why people wear their nicest clothes. Still, in some churches, <laughs> some of you do. Some of you look very nice this morning. Just want you to know that. <laughs> but the church went down that road so far that, that it was almost a sin not to wear, ladies, a, a nice ankle-length dress, guys, a suit and a tie. If you weren't dressed right, it was a, 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 sh- a sign, a show of disrespect for the Father. You weren't dressed. You weren't ready. You were sloppy. Honestly, I really could care less what people dress when they come to church. But you know what's funny to me is how much time we spend, even me dressed in my jeans, primping and getting ready and doing the hair and the teeth and the shaving and the whole nine yards to come and worship the Father. And and I wonder how much heart preparation that we do. How many of you get up on Sunday morning an extra hour early to pray so that when worship happens, you'll be ready to meet the Father? You'll be washed. You'll be dressed. How many of you are reading your Bible first thing on Sunday morning just going, I, I just I want to be ready for whatever the Lord's going to bring this morning. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I'll tell you this much. I would be one raising my hand in the group that normally, man, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm flying out of that house at the last second to get here to get rehearsal done and finish that and put the guitar down. <laughs> okay, we're ready to go. Let's be at peace. <laughs> but it's not just Sunday morning and that, that's you know that's Sunday and that's legalism if we start talking about well i got to get up an extra hour early every Sunday morning be ready for church I'm not talking about that either just that God looks at the heart and he looks at the readiness that happens in the heart and you need to understand something when we are spiritually sloppy when we're unwashed when we're lackadaisical about holiness what we're saying to the Lord is hey thanks Jesus for the cross Thanks for the cross. If we, were no, if we knew that we were going to the crucifixion, how would we be dressed? Would our clothes, our spiritual clothes, be washed? If we knew this morning we weren't going to listen to a band and a preacher, but we were going to stand at the foot of the cross and watch Jesus crucified... How then would we prepare? Or greater than that, if we knew we were going to attend the resurrection, how would we be dressed spiritually? If we knew that at 12.05 today, Jesus was going to blast the trumpet and call us to meet Him, what would we do between now and then 
to be ready. God tells the people of Israel, He says, wash your clothes. Get them washed. Wash all of your garments. Be ready. And we need to understand something here, and this is incredibly important, and it is the line that we're going to draw between legalism and grace, listen closely, between law and grace, and that's the following. God is saying get consecrated. He is not saying get saved. They were already saved. Consecration and salvation are two different things. They are not the same thing. Israel at this point are a saved people. They are pulled out of Egypt. They are at God's mountain. They have been protected. They have been fed. They have been wondrously cared for. They are a saved people. But now God says, you're saved. Get consecrated. Get consecrated. Be washed. Be prepared to meet Him at the journey. Gang, Christianity begins with salvation. It's that moment when you step into the family of God. It is something that He does by His grace, not something that you do by your works. However, however, the washing of our clothes... That's something we can do. And that's consecration. And it's all part of our preparation. So how do we do that? How do we wash our clothes? How do we get consecrated? Let's move down from these spiritual, you know, Bible words down to just some normal heart day, everyday language. How do we do this? Someone might say baptism. And I'd say that is a great place to start. It's a great place to start. But baptism itself, again, is not about salvation. It's about consecration. It's about getting washed. That's what happens when a person is baptized. I want to make sure it's clear what the Bible says about baptism because I think many in the church don't understand this. The word baptism, it's a Greek word, baptizo, it means to immerse. It means to immerse, which is much more the picture of getting washed, isn't it? Than being sprinkled. Wow, red. Yeah, but that's... I don't know, that, 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 that's just, you're being picky now. Well, I'm just telling you what the word means. Which is why the bridge we immerse. Which is why we use the pond and we'll go over here and, wow, the, pan, the pond, I mean, that, that, the water, is that the cleanest water there? I've seen cows walking around that thing. <laughs> don't miss it, it's a symbol. It is a symbol of being spiritually washed. But gang, baptism is not about salvation. It is about consecration. Baptism is that first step of consecration. But it's also, and hear me on this, Christians, it is not the last step of consecration either. It's not that you go down the water, come back out and go, All right, I'm ready. What movie's playing tonight? What are we going to go do? i got to think about other things now. But i got, you know, I got my baptism taken care of. i got it under my belt. Something else about baptism you probably should know. It's for believers. Jesus said, if you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. You need to be in a place in your life where you can say, I believe. I I do believe, Lord. Baptism is the first step of consecration following salvation. But gang, it's not the last step. Let me just ask you, think about this, consider this, maybe even pray about it as we go on. Have you taken that first step of obedient consecration? Not salvation. I mean, more people who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, who have received salvation, but have never been baptized. And I think, wow, well, you just missed a step. And they've probably been consecrated in many other ways in their life before the Lord, but not that one. And I say to you, if that happens to be you here today, go back and pick that step up. Why? What if I don't? Well... I guess that's between you and the Lord to talk about. 
But Jesus said, I want you to do it. Jesus was so serious about it that he did it. Baptism is that first step of consecration, that first step of getting washed. But once you've been baptized, gang, there is an ongoing washing of the clothes that takes place in the Christian life. A washing of our clothes in preparation for the wedding feast. You may say, well, how do we do that? Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Now, he's not talking about husbands and wives here. You'll find that when you read a little bit further down in the passage. But he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. It's another word for consecrate. He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Consecration, man. The washing of water with the word. But Paul doesn't just say that Christ cleansed the church with the word. He says he cleansed the church with the washing of water. With the word. So what does that mean? i got to read my Bible in the shower? What are we talking about here? What, what does the Bible speak of whenever it mentions water? Any guesses? Let me throw another word in front of water. Living water. What is living water in the Bible? The Spirit. Thank you, Spencer. The Holy Spirit. Keep that in mind as you read through, especially in the New Testament, as you begin to see water referred to, look at the context of it and keep in mind that Jesus said the Holy Spirit was living water. Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, John 4, 7, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. By this He spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, listen to this. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, renewal, redoing, reconsecration. It speaks of something that is an ongoing process in our lives. We continue to be washed by the Spirit and the Word. We continue the water and the Word, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God together. Both functioning, both drawing us near to God. The Spirit, the Word, the Word, the Spirit. Christ consecrates His church by the washing of water with the Word. Not the washing of water, by the way, or the Word. Not the washing of water, and maybe the Word, the washing of water with the Word. A lot of churches miss that. In fact, what you'll find in Christianity is churches that are big on the living water and small on the Word. Or, big on the Word, but there's no living water. It's not either or with God, folks. It's both and Water and Word, Holy Spirit and the Word. The two together, that's God's one-two power punch for consecrating believers. And once you've begun washing in the symbolic water of baptism, I just encourage you, keep cleansing through the water, which is the Spirit, and the Word. Pray in the Spirit, Paul said, at all times. Pray in the Spirit. Seek the Spirit. How does the Spirit work in my life? Ask God. And we will be talking about, as days and weeks come, if days and weeks come, we will be talking about the Spirit and more how He functions, how He works among us. 
But seek Him as much as and as passionately as you seek His Word, for the two together make living water. The Word by itself. With no Spirit, pull the Spirit out of the Word, and it's dry, cracked, lifeless paper. It's like reading a college textbook. Which is why a lot of people don't get the Bible, because they don't have the Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit is going to teach you. And when I had the Spirit, I began to look at the Bible. It is alive. As Paul said, living and active. Well, wash your clothes. That's the first thing we can do. Second thing, watch your step. Watch your step. Uh-oh, it sounds legalistic. Hang with me. Backdrop of grace. Watch your step. Verse 12. God says, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying... Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be sown or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Moses set boundaries. The people need boundaries. Now, you wouldn't think they would. You look at Mount Sinai, this great rock pulpit, you see it shaking and trembling, the fire of God on the top of the mountain, and most of the people are trembling and terrified, but there's always that one kid, you know? He's the one who, who always just disobeys a little bit too long. He just goes one step too far. There's that one person who's just going to go, oh, let's see what happens if I do touch that mountain. Moses is up there talking to God, really? I have no fear. I'll go check him out. He puts on a little no fear hat. Off he goes to see God. And so God says, you can't handle my holiness. You cannot handle my presence. Moses, I don't want these people killed. So set boundaries. Gang, you may say that doesn't sound very relational, Pastor. And I say to you, God wants us to know him. He wants us close to him. He wants relationship with us, but he also knows that his glory and power and majesty would kill us if we got too close. He knows this. We are still flesh and blood, folks. His holiness is so intense. Literally, it would kill us. Kind of like Cheryl's sister, Deanne, when she was a little girl and Cheryl was little, Cheryl had a hamster. Do you remember what your hamster's name was? Lollipop. Lollipop. <laughs> Cheryl's hamster Lollipop, a sweet little hamster. And Deanne, who's three, three and a half years younger than Cheryl, loves Lollipop. She wanted to hold Lollipop, to caress Lollipop, to squeeze Lollipop. <laughs> you know what happened. Suddenly Lollipop was not moving. <laughs> So much for Lollipop. No restraint. She loved Lollipop. But she could not restrain her childish affection for Lollipop and squeezed it to death. Boundaries. It's like a father wrestling with children. I love to wrestle with my kids. I just the other night, I grabbed Hayden and I just, I, I love to just roll on top of them and smother them and they're going, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I'm like, ah, ha, 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 ha. I'll tell you what, if I didn't show restraint, there would be damage. I could break Hayden's arm if I wanted to. Is he in here? Yeah. I don't want to, so. But I'm serious. I get my hands around his little forearm, and there are times where I think in my sick, demented, twisted mind, I could just go pop. And I could. 
what does a father do when he wrestles with his kids? I want affection with my kids. I love to hug my kids. I love touch with my kids. And I love rolling around on the floor and, and playing and, and you know bumping into each other. I love that. But I love my kids too much to hurt them. And so God, being a father, much, much greater than any of us, says, I love my kids too much to hurt them. We need some boundaries. We need some restraint. I want my kids to be in relationship with me, but I want boundaries for them. Ultimately, God, by the way, would break down all boundaries in coming as Jesus to earth. And John 1.17 says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. God had a plan, a way that he could get down and wrestle with us. And be like us, and be touchable in Jesus. He's the answer for God's desire for closeness without wiping us out. But now, my friends, in grace and in truth, we can still watch our step. We can experience function within God's boundaries, which are set up to help us be more consecrated, to help us draw closer to Him, even now until He comes. We have boundaries that if we will use them, they will free us, as opposed to chain us. Well, how does that work without becoming legalistic and law-driven? 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. This is a wonderful verse. Little children... Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as God is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one, listen, no one who is born of God practices sin. Really? Oh, boy. Am I in trouble? Because I thought I was born of God. Anyone not sin in the last month? Let's just see if I can. Nobody not sin in the last. Okay. I'm glad to see that because we just would have had the sin of lying if anyone had raised their hand. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, Jesus, abides in him, and he cannot sin. For he is born of God. Well, wait a minute. How does that work? Uh, born of God? Yeah, I thought I was, but I still sin. The language is very clear, gang. What John is saying here is God has washed away all of our sin. Yes, he has. That's not what John's talking about. He's talking about practice. Are you engaged in the practice of sin or in the practice of righteousness? Man, if you're born of God, you are not about the practice of sin. You are practicing righteousness. doesn't mean that you are, well, actually you are righteous in Jesus. Perfectly righteous and holy in Jesus. So what we do with our lives then, it makes no sense. Paul said in Romans 6, 1, he said, Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's ridiculous. And yet so often we do. Oh, I've been saved. Now I want to live this way. Okay, if I'm born of God, that which I practice is righteousness. It doesn't mean I'm perfect at it. It doesn't mean I don't sin. It doesn't mean I don't fall. I don't get confused. I don't mess it up. I'm still a child. I'm still growing. I'm still being consecrated. But I'm practicing. I'm practicing. Any of you parents ever have a child begin a musical instrument? My mom 
taught band, fourth, fifth, sixth grade band for years. And I never understood why she didn't want loud music playing when she came home. But I would go to those concerts, and it was ugly. But it's amazing, the older the kid gets and the more the kid practices, the better they get, until you actually kind of like hearing them play. They're actually hitting most of the notes. They're practicing. And John says, those who are born of God, they don't practice sin. They practice righteousness. Because God has washed away all my sin. Ephesians 2.8 By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And I can still sin, folks. Oh, I can still do it. But God no longer sees that sin. When John says, No one who is born of God practices sin, he's right. It's not what we practice. Not supposed to be. What we practice is righteousness. You want to know what the difference is here between legalism and grace living? Someone who's living by grace knows they're a sinner, but they're practicing righteousness. A legalist thinks they're righteous, and they're not. Got the difference? Practice what God has already done in and for you. Practice righteousness. Watch your step. How do I do that, though? Well, watching your step is very easy. It's accepting the boundaries of righteousness, not because I have to, but because I want to. And suddenly the Ten Commandments, which will come up in chapter 20, become a law of perfect freedom. Not of restraint. Not a law that, man, I've got to follow to the T because if I don't, oh, I'm just not the righteous person I thought I was. Suddenly we begin to read, and now you see, in grace, Christians should be looking at the Old Testament. In grace, Christians should be reading on, meditating on the law. That's how David can say, on your law, I meditate day and night. That makes me righteous. It helps me as I practice righteousness. I'm meditating on the law, not because I'm some sick law-focused legalist, but because the law brings me to freedom. And God sets these fences up, these boundaries, as I walk through them, and I understand. And, and He says things like, I don't have any other gods before me. I go, that's a good one. That's a boundary. I'll stick to having one God. And don't make for you, yourselves any kind of idols or likenesses. Don't worship them. Oh, I can do that. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I'll tell you what, that's something the church could work on a bit. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. Good, got that one. Although I killed someone with my words last week. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't cover what covet what your neighbor has. Ten Commandments It's law No It's grace It's freedom When you are already a saved person Seeking simply to be washed before the Lord To to walk within those boundaries To watch your step The next ten or eleven weeks by the way And I just read through those real quickly We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 We're going to stay in one chapter On Sunday mornings We're going to continue on studying Exodus on Wednesday nights But on Sunday mornings we're going to stay in Exodus 20 And go through one at a time The Ten Commandments Because we need it We need it Our country which was founded on and grounded in those commandments Needs it 
And if you ask the question, why should a Christian study the commandments and the law, we study the law to better understand grace. And the more I understand grace, the more I will naturally embrace the law. Now I have one more thing to tell you. One more thing and then I'm done. Wash up before dinner. Watch your step. And finally, finally, welcome purity. Welcome purity. Look at verse 15. I said we'd get back to this. Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So right now I'd like the ladies to sit over here and I'd like the guys to move to this. I'm just kidding. What's going on with that? What, what's he talking about? Men, stay away from the women. I'll just take you down. <laughs> I've seen it happen. It's not a pretty sight. This idea of staying away from the women... You know what's interesting about it? It works both ways. When you tell a man to stay away from a woman, typically the woman's just not going to go near the man. So it works. It works for both. All right? It's kind of like when Cheryl and I were in college and we had the girls' dorms and the guys' dorms and there was curfew for both, but the girls had to check in. They didn't care if the guys came in or not because they figured if the girls were in their dorm by curfew, the guys wouldn't have anything to do anyway. <laughs> they were wrong. <laughs> That was when we went and got dinner. So we skipped dinner to be with the girls longer and then we'd go get dinner later. Anyway, this idea of staying away from women, it's about, gang, and listen, please don't miss this this morning. It's about fleshly desire. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, a verse I never thought I would preach on. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. I'm just going to let that sit for a second. (laughs) Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. He's talking about sex. He is. Stop depriving one another except by agreement. Why? For a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is Paul's advice to a married couple. I love it. Don't deprive each other. Man, husbands and wives, don't play that game. Please don't do that. Either way, don't use it. Well, you know what? uh, I know you really want that dress. And I'll get it for you. But, uh, you gotta do something for me. Galen, who's not yet married, thinks that's a little sick. Married couples are still in the flesh, Galen. Don't use it against each other. Don't say, I'm gonna withhold. No, you've made me angry. I'm sorry, I'm out. I'm done. I know we were planning that, but you said that two or three things over dinner, and you're just going to have to suffer for that. So enjoy yourself, because I'm not going to be there tonight. And unmarried people are going, I can't believe he's talking about this. Stop depriving one another, Paul says, except for agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And this is the thing we miss in this verse. How many couples will look at each other, husband and wife, and go, hey, honey. I want to head back to the bedroom and pray? <laughs> you want to join our hearts in the unity and the intimacy of prayer? Oh, we could do the other thing. 
but that's over so fast. Or we could bow together and experience real intimacy, which is what the Father is saying to the people. I want intimacy with you. Don't go near each other sexually. Let's set aside the flesh. You've got three days. Three days to set aside the flesh and to get ready for a true intimacy. A spiritual intimacy. An intimacy that will, husbands and wives in your relationships, bond you closer. I'll tell you what, the number one thing to do if you're having marriage problems is pray together. Pray together. You know how hard it is to hide things when you are praying with your wife or your husband? You know how hard it is to hold bitterness or anger toward your husband or wife when you are praying together? Approaching the same Jesus who died on the cross to forgive and save you? Welcome purity. For those of you who are not married, you live in a society that is so oversexed it's not even funny. It's sad that we can't even turn the TV on without being bombarded by sexual stuff, sexual sin. Welcome purity. Purity is not a bad thing. Purity is where true intimacy is found. It is a wonderful thing. It's interesting to me that intimacy by the world's standard is physically, sexually driven. That's intimacy to the world. But intimacy to the Father is purity. It's having a spirit that is more pure. People get ready. Set aside your normal fleshly appetite in favor of the spiritual. Paul says in Philippians 3.18, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction. Whose God is their appetite. And whose glory is their shame. Who set their minds on earthly things. Our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait. We wait. We wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. By the exertion of power that He has even subject to subject all things to Himself and husbands and wives. Paul is not saying to replace I've got a headache with I've got to pray. He's encouraging the health and spiritual life in your marriage in that place of intimacy that is even deeper than you can find in any other way. Pray together. Besides, we got to be getting ready. In our marriages, in our families, in our personal lives, it's time we start getting ready. Wash your clothes. Watch your step. Welcome purity and then it happened then it happened just as God said it would happen on the morning of the third day verse 16 says when it was morning on the third day there was there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain down in verse 20 the Lord came down And Moses went up. I don't know about the whole camp of Israel, but I believe Moses was ready. I believe he was ready. And gang, I also believe we're there. I believe that we are early in the pre-dawn hours of the third day. We have come to Sinai. 
the mountain of God, Mount Zion, on the morning of the third day. And there the trumpet sounded, the Lord came down, Moses went up, wash your clothes, watch your step, welcome purity, and let's be ready so that when it happens, we just go.